We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Get my feet out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? About four or five times more worse than what we anticipated, and the pilot's visor is completely blocked off the really frozen over. In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 83 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now... Jiminy 11 with Charles, Pete, Conrad, and Richard Gordon. We left off last time after the successful completion of the Jiminy 10 mission. By the end of summer of 1966, other space programs such as Apollo, Apollo Applications, and the Air Force's Manned Orbiting Laboratory were already culling Project Gemini for useful equipment and people. Engineers still working on Gemini were distracted by calls to help qualify a heat shield for the manned orbiting laboratory, or to work on airlocks for the applications program, or to share their launch vehicle experience with Apollo. In addition, NASA headquarters was pressing the Manned Spacecraft Center to reduce the intervals between launches again, this time from two months to six weeks. As the Gemini program neared its end, spare parts emerged as a new concern. Would there be enough hardware to finish out the missions? As Scott Simpkinson who managed Gemini test operations, recalled, quote, It was a bit touchy, but we made it, end quote. In this hectic climate, NASA flew the last two Gemini missions. Gemini's final deadline was now flatly fixed at the end of January 1967, with Gemini 11 tentatively set for September 11th and Gemini 12 for October 31st. Some significant goals had been set for the last two flights. For example, the Apollo Spacecraft Program Office successfully pushed for a rendezvous in the first spacecraft revolution, which would simulate lunar orbit rendezvous. There was also interest in linking an Agena to a spacecraft by a tether and then spinning the combination to produce something like artificial gravity. One short-lived proposal, a rendezvous between Gemini 12 and an Apollo spacecraft, was ended after review by both program offices. Another idea, a flyby or rendezvous of a Gemini spacecraft with an orbital astronomical laboratory, also came to nothing. And finally, on the last mission, 
the Air Force still hoped to fly the astronaut maneuvering unit, a task that Eugene Cernan had been forced to abandon on Gemini 9A. On March 21, 1966, Charles Conrad and Richard Gordon were named as the command pilot and pilot for Gemini 11. Neil Armstrong and William Anders were picked as alternates. You probably recall Pete Conrad from his Gemini 5 mission, where he and Gordon Cooper spent eight days in orbit inside a Gemini capsule. Pete is easily recognizable by his distinctive gap between his front teeth. Pete's biography was covered in episode 63, so let's move on to Richard Gordon's brief biography. Richard Gordon was born on October 5, 1929 in Seattle, Washington. He graduated from North Kitsap High School in Polesbo, Washington in 1947. Then, he received a Bachelor of Science degree in Chemistry from the University of Washington in 1951. He married the former Barbara J. Field of Seattle, Washington, and they had two daughters and four sons. Like many other astronauts, Gordon was a Boy Scout. He earned the rank of Star Scout. Gordon received his wings as a naval aviator in 1953. He then attended all-weather flight school and jet transitional training and was subsequently assigned to an all-fighter squadron at Jacksonville, Florida. In 1957, he attended the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School at Naval Air Station Patuxent River, Maryland, and served as a flight test pilot until 1960. During this tour of duty, he did flight test work on the F-8U Cruiser, F-11F Tiger, F-J Fury, and A-4D Skyhawk. He also served as the first project test pilot for the F-4H Phantom II. He served with Fighter Squadron VF-121 at the Naval Air Station Miramar, California, as a flight instructor in the F-4H and participated in the introduction of that aircraft to the Atlantic and Pacific fleets. He was also flight safety officer, assistant operations officer, and ground training officer for Fighter Squadron VF-96 at Miramar. In 1961, he won the Bendix Trophy Race from Los Angeles to New York City, in which he established a new speed record of 869.74 miles per hour and a transcontinental speed record of 2 hours and 47 minutes. He was also a student at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School at Monterey, California. He logged more than 4,500 hours flight time, 3,500 hours in jet aircraft. Gordon 
was one of the third group of astronauts selected by NASA in October 1963. He had been a finalist for the second group in 1962. Gordon served as backup pilot for the Gemini 8 flight, and in September 1966, he made his first space flight as the pilot of Gemini 11 alongside Pete Conrad. Gordon was already good friends with Conrad, who had been his roommate on the carrier USS Ranger. Now let's move on to the mission planning for Gemini 11. When Pete Conrad was training in mid-1965 as pilot for Gemini 5, he learned of a plan to fly Gemini around the moon in a mission called Large Earth Orbit, or LEO. The concept, in one form or another, had recurred sporadically, only to be shot down ever since Gemini's first year. But, Large Earth Orbit raised interest all the way from MSC to Congress. But NASA's top leaders, James Webb and Robert Siemens, did not agree with the Large Earth Orbit plan. They argued that Apollo did not need a competitor, and if Congress wanted to appropriate additional funds, Webb said it would be better to spend them on the program that was designed to go to the moon, which was Apollo. Conrad was much taken with the notion of a Gemini trip around the moon. Even after Webb dismissed the scheme, he still wanted to take Gemini as far as it would go. When he was named as command pilot, he recalled, It didn't look like a high-altitude flight was ever going to get done on Gemini. Conrad saw a heaven-sent opportunity to resurrect the idea when he calculated that he could save some of Agena's fuel to power a high ride. He began a small crusade to convince NASA management that there were good reasons for going really high. Although the Weather Bureau had satellites flying at very high altitudes, their television pictures of cloud formations had poor resolution. Moreover, the Bureau had been debating the use of a color system. Conrad argued that Gemini 11 could bring back films to help them decide its worth. It was, in fact, to the experimenters that he first turned in his campaign to fly high, asking which experiments might be helped and which degraded by higher altitudes. He learned that Maurice Shapiro of the Naval Research Laboratory was concerned that radiation particles from the Van Allen belts might affect his nuclear emulsion experiment at the higher orbit. That almost killed Conrad's plan before it was started, but he enlisted fellow astronaut Anders, a nuclear engineer, for a trip to Washington to argue against the threat. After Anders got friends at Goddard Space Flight Center to look into the radiation belt hazards and to devise ways of avoiding them, the high apogee excursion soon became part of Gemini 11. Another idea that flourished briefly during 1965 was a possible rendezvous with a Pegasus satellite. 
that was first considered for Gemini 6, then for Gemini 8. But, when extravehicular activity was cancelled on Geminis 5 through 7, the planners realized that the rendezvous with a satellite experience would be too limited and risk too great to have an astronaut approach a satellite in space. The Gemini Project Office decided in January 1966 that there would be no rendezvous with a satellite. Another unique objective for Gemini 11 was called First Orbit Rendezvous. This had first been suggested before Gemini flights even began. It was proposed by Richard R. Carley of the Gemini Project Office. The idea had been put aside when interest had focused on a concentric fourth orbit plan. Carley's proposal revived when the Apollo office insisted on a closer simulation of lunar orbit rendezvous. With some signs of reluctance, the Gemini Project office asked McDonnell to study the maneuver. The first meeting to create plans and ground rules for the study revealed some foot-dragging. The meeting results included a curious stipulation about a first orbit rendezvous. It read, quote, There should be no artificial restrictions in the plan to make the mission simulate Apollo operations or to simulate lunar rendezvous conditions. End quote. Well, obviously, the main reason for having a first orbit rendezvous was to simulate lunar rendezvous. Eventually, Apollo interest prevailed and the stipulation was removed. There would, in fact, be an attempt at rendezvous in the first orbit for Gemini 11. Another idea was to create artificial gravity in space. Although ideas for achieving artificial gravity in space preceded real manned spaceflight by many decades, Gemini offered the first chance to turn scientific fiction into fact. Half the program had passed, however, before NASA got around to planning tethered vehicle flights. The Gemini Project Office first asked the Engineering and Development Directive to study the problems involved in tying the Gemini spacecraft to either the Agena or the Pegasus satellite. Its backlog of Apollo work forced the Directorate to decline its aid in view of the extensive simulation required. Appeals to flight operations were more fruitful, however, leading to a number of tethered simulations, the data from which was duly passed along to McDonnell. The idea was to attach one end of the tether to the Gemini capsule and the other end to the Agena. The tether would then be stretched out to its full length. With the tether tight, the Gemini capsule would apply thrust to begin rotation around the center of the tether. McDonnell Guidance and Control Group found that nylon or Dacron tethers no longer than 50 meters and a spin rate no more than 10 degrees per second produced a reasonable amount of cable tension 
and recommended that the pilots practice spinning on a vehicle simulator to learn how best to conserve fuel. When NASA planners listed tethered flight as a mission objective, they first thought of it as a way of evaluating the tether as an aid to station keeping. But it might also be a means of inducing some degree of artificial gravity. The minimum spin rate depended upon whether the tether activity was intended primarily for formation flying or for achieving gravity. NASA decided to try for both, although it would settle for an economical and feasible method of long-term unattended station keeping and chose a 36-meter Dacron line. The Gemini Mission Review Board reviewed all the new activities in depth, especially the first orbit rendezvous, which might be a heavy fuel user. Young and Collins had expended so much fuel in the Gemini 10 rendezvous that the board was dubious about trying a first orbit link-up that was largely computed on board with an Agena target. But Flight Director Glenn Lunny assured the group that Mission Control could give the crew backup data on orbital insertion and on the accuracy of their first maneuver. The network would have plenty of information to help them begin the terminal phase of rendezvous. The board concluded that if the rendezvous used only half the fuel supply, about 187 kilograms, there would be ample for the rest of the mission. Some skeptics remained. William Snyder, Deputy Director for Missions Operations, had a bet with Board Chairman James Ems that it could not be done that economically. The Board seemed less concerned about the high apogee maneuver and the tethered vehicle exercise than about direct rendezvous. Radiation levels on Gemini 10 had been only one-tenth of the pre-flight estimate. The board simply asked that MSC and Goddard keep track of the latest measurements. The only major question about the tether plan was the method for freeing the spacecraft from the Agena. The board was told that the plan was to fire a pyrotechnic charge ejecting the docking bar at right angles to the spacecraft's path. If that did not work, there was a break link in the tether that could be snapped by a small separation velocity. As might be expected, extravehicular activity received special attention. After the experience on Gemini 9A, training methods were sought that would more closely approximate flight conditions. One likely approach simulated zero-g by putting a space-suited astronaut underwater, where buoyancy almost balanced weight, and leaving him to cope with the mass and inertia, just as he would have to in space. Despite the degree of EVA success that Collins had in Gemini 10, work on this idea went ahead. There were certainly many misgivings at MSC that the underwater neutral buoyancy idea would work, but astronaut Gene Cernan, who checked out the method at Gilruth's request, found that moving about underwater in a pressure suit 
closely matched his efforts in space. These findings, however, were not impressed upon Gordon in his training for Gemini 11. More was needed than a better training medium. Both experiments and body position aids had to be improved. Hardware changes included handholds on the target vehicle docking cone, a shorter umbilical cord, and better foot restraints in the spacecraft adapter. The handholds were simple to design and install. Both Collins and Young had complained about the 15-meter snake that had entangled Collins. They suggested its length be cut to 9 meters, and the Gemini Project office agreed. Developing better foot restraints took a little more time. McDonald was working on two kinds, a spring clamp like those on a ski and a buckle type. NASA chose the latter, which were nicknamed the Golden Slippers. Moving on to the experiments. Twelve experiments were included in the Gemini 11 flight plan. Nine were scientific, the other three technological. Two of the science experiments, S-29, Earth-Moon Libration Region Photography, and S-30, Dim Light Photography, were new to Gemini. The other seven science experiments, which included weather, terrain, and air glow horizontal photography, radiation and zero-g effects, ion-wake measurement, nuclear emulsion, and the ultraviolet astronomical camera, had been assigned to previous missions. The three technological experiments, which were mass determination, night image intensification, and power tool evaluation had also been assigned to previous Gemini missions. The Gemini Mission Review Board concluded that the experiments fitted properly into the Gemini 11 workload, and by August 25th, MSC was able to report that all experiments were ready for flight. Now let's move on to the launch. As with previous Gemini missions, the Atlas Agena target vehicle would be launched first, and then Gemini 11 would be launched to chase it down. Before the end of July, launch preparations were underway in Florida. On August 11th, NASA decided that the flight would be launched on or about September 9th, which was only two days after the target date set more than three months earlier. The countdown to launch began on schedule on September 9, 1966, but it did not finish that way. After the Titan booster was fueled, the launch crew detected a pinhole leak in the first stage oxidizer tank, which had to be fixed. Technicians used a sodium silicate solution and an aluminum patch to plug the leak and Mission Director Snyder reset the launch for September 10th. Unfortunately, trouble for the second scheduled launch cropped up in a different area and much later in the countdown. Conrad and Gordon had completed the required rituals and were headed toward Pad 19 and their spacecraft when they heard that the Atlas Agena, which was only 1,800 meters away, was having a problem with its autopilot. The General Dynamics 
test conductor called a hold in the countdown to have this suddenly wayward instrument checked. His engineers told him that they were receiving faulty readings and were running checks before deciding whether to replace the part. When the delay had stretched to an hour, Snyder postponed the launch for two more days. The problem was caused by a combination of factors. A fluttering valve, unusually high winds, and a too sensitive telemetry recorder, none of which required replacement of the autopilot. There would be no further delays. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.